Welcome to another episode of the WBT. I, Adrian Bonnenberger, will be your host today, and I'm joined by educator, academic, leftist thinker, essayist, and author of The Cult of Smart, Freddie DeBoer. Freddie, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. The Cult of Smart is one of the most insightful and important pieces of cultural criticism that I've read in years. Uh, the central premise of the book is that, firstly, as intelligence, at least the way we measure it, is greatly influenced by genetics, as greatly as environment, or perhaps even more greatly. People who are born smart enjoy a huge advantage over folks who aren't. That premise, which might be objectionable under other circumstances or used for other purposes, such as the awful ends it's been put toward by racial supremacists, is turned on its head, as it were, when Freddie argues convincingly that we've built a meritocratic society around a meritocratic educational system that is, at its heart, not meritocratic at all. The Cult of Smart is about nothing less than the wholesale reform of the ethos behind that educational system and meritocracy in general. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, <clears throat> sure. Although I do talk about genetics a great deal in the book, one thing that I have been a point I've been making recently is that you can, you can agree with the broader thrust of the book, even if, even if you believe that there is no genetic influence. At its most basic, the observation uh, that the book makes is that every time we observe education, we observe a distribution of ability. In other words, when we look at education, students are unequal in their outcomes. And not only are they unequal in their outcomes, but the, that inequality uh, tends to be stable over the course of life. So students tend to sort themselves into ability bands quite early in their academic lives. Of course, there's exceptions, but generally tend to remain in the same ability bands over time. Everything we've tried to change this, this fact that there's a distribution of ability, everything that we've done to um, uh, create educational equality has failed. Um, we have tried, we've invested hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars. We've had armies of researchers and policy makers and, and politicians and teachers and parents have worked to bring some kids up um, from, from below in terms of their academic outcomes, where our entire policy apparatus has been captured by this effort at times, and nothing has changed it. And so even for those who are squeamish about the the genetics, as long as we acknowledge that parents, teachers, students themselves are not in control, perfect control, over how well students do uh, academically, then I think that you can accept uh, some of the consequences of my book. One of the, uh, one of the most compelling and convincing, I thought, uh, arguments that you made was the example of abstract math and, uh, and algebra. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think a lot of people might not understand that there are some people who just ne never, never uh, 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 sort that out. That's, that's a big thing to swallow. I mean, look, um, math requirements, algebra requirements, pre-calc requirements caused havoc in the educational lives of many people. I put the high school and the college level uh, there are requirements that students have to meet, whether that's in terms of passing their classes or in standardized testing. And those requirements have been well documented to lead to tons of people dropping out, again, both in high school and college, because the students just can't meet them. 
There's a book called The Math Myth by Andrew Hacker, who's an economist. And uh, he uh, goes on at length about uh, the sheer prevalence of people failing their math requirements and how those lead to dropouts and how they really wreak havoc with schools. For example, in the year that he was researching in Arizona, there was something like uh, like 67% of Arizona's students failed to, to pass their math requirement. Um, other states had uh, not quite as high, but, but similar figures. And then uh, even in states where people are passing, so in New York, it's flipped around where something like 70% of the students are passing their regents in algebra. But the fine print is that you only have to, pass, to get a third of the questions correct to pass. So either we're talking about high failure rates or we're talking about uh, low standards. The, I think that this is just based on just a faulty understanding of what education should be for. Um, if we acknowledge that different students have different gifts and that they have different strengths and that we all have different things to contribute, then you can do things like say, you know what, not everyone has to pass a algebra class, right? So, uh, have a quantitative reasoning class, an intro to statistics class that can take the place of these classes. So one of the major policy recommendations of the book is to uh, loosen the, the the standards and loosen the requirements so that uh, there's more of an opportunity for people to be able to uh, fit their education around their abilities instead of trying to get squeezed into a box they can't fit into. Yeah, something interesting that uh, that I've discovered in talking about this book in my personal life is the the two groups of people that seem to have the least trouble understanding the argument or considering it on its merits are people on the right who believe that there is some sort of essential, people have some kind of essential quality that's immutable. Uh, how, whether they understand that in, ter in religious terms or genetic terms, that's sensible to them. Or people on the left who understand that we don't have a meritocratic society and there are all of these weird arbitrary mechanisms that are in place to kind of juke the system and make it look like people actually have the same chance, but they don't. The people who have the most difficult time with it, uh, as I've discovered, is um, you know, people who are bought into that system, I guess you would call them um, maybe centrists, uh, you know, so sort of deeply mainstream Democrats, deeply mainstream Republicans who feel that the system as it is, is correct and, and is being failed by people who don't understand it correctly or something like that, that just don't see, uh, they believe that, that the system is meritocratic. And, and I, I've had like vehement arguments with people who, who, who just sort of reject the book out of hand or like, that can't be true. What have you seen the, the conversation like in, in, in the public sphere? I mean, the thing is, is I wrote this book in part, part of what attracted me to the project was that I, I couldn't think of a major political tendency that would like it. You know, like I, I thought that, that, it would, that it would be rejected pretty much across the spectrum. So conservatives have the belief in the self-made man, uh, which is very dear to them. Centrists believe in the system and they want to perpetuate the system and think that it's fair and that it's, it's worth uh, saving. Uh, liberals want to believe in the equality of everybody. They don't want to be told that different people have different strengths and abilities. Um, and uh, leftists, I think, um, would agree that the system needs to be torn upside down, but I think would be squeamish about uh, the idea that people have different uh, fundamental abilities. So far, I mean, there, there have been some positive reviews. The National Review ran a positive review. The Wall Street Journal was as positive as it was going to be. Um, <laughs> 
Uh, they did not like my charter school stance, which was inevitable. But uh, so, but, but there's been a lot of people who don't like it, particularly like in the Goodreads reviews and the Amazon re reviews. But what I I am happy that the the reasons they give that they don't like it are always different. So it's striking people in different ways, I guess. Yeah. Something that um, I didn't articulate well when I was uh, describing the problem that people have with the book, I think in the center, it's not just, it's not just that the system feels attacked, but the, the title of the book, because you don't actually, I don't think you actually spend all that much time talking about the essential premise, the cult of smart, which is that there is this thing, there's this one quality that gets a buy, where if you're smart in the way that we measure intelligence, in the way that we measure smart testing, then you are going to have an easier time, not just in academia, but in your whole life because academia is plugged into the job market and everything else. Yeah. And that's like, that, I, I was so impressed because that's kind of like heresy. Like you've discovered the one modern heresy in, mm -hmm. in our system, which is that at the one, on the one hand, you have to say, we live in a meritocracy. But on the other hand, we don't. There are people who are intelligent who benefit disproportionately from the entire system as we've built it, from education to job. A very common reaction to the book has been to say, I'm defining intelligence narrowly. I'm, you know, intelligence means many different things. There's different kinds of intelligence. I don't disagree with any of that, but the thing is, is I'm not the one who's defining intelligence. If the system has defined intelligence or academic ability in a certain narrow way, and the system that is of having people succeed or fail based on that determination. So when I when I talk about academic ability or intelligence, I'm I'm re referring to the way that those things are defined by the system that I'm critiquing. But part of it too is that you know you're right. Intelligence intelligence isn't an absolute good. It is a good thing to be intelligent. Nobody would disagree with that. Nobody you know if if, if offered the option between being intelligent and unintelligent, most people would choose to be intelligent. By itself, it, it isn't good. And in fact, it can be very bad. It can be mischievous. If you have no wisdom, for example, like if you're very smart, but very naive and foolish, then your intelligence can easily be co-opted as many of the people probably working for like Google and Facebook know now. And integrity, you know, and empathy are also great qualities that can be trained to a certain extent, but some people are unempathetic, are, are incapable of empathy. Sociopaths, for example. I, I do think that you make a, a, a very, very important point that like there is this kind of fetishization that people look at smart, at intelligence, and they say, this is it. This is the thing. And we know that they do this because of the educational system and the way the educational system plugs into the job market. Mm -hmm. This is a, an ideology that we're talking about, this fetish for, for, for smarts. And, you know, like any ideology, you know, culture follows economics. In other words, the, the economy changes and culture changes to meet it. In the latter decades of the 20th century, the employment market collapsed for people without uh, college degrees. We saw Coincident with that, at the same time, uh, we saw more and more and more pressure being put into schooling. Um, <clears throat> I quote Obama, W. Bush, uh, Clinton, H.W. Bush, Reagan, all of them saying education is the key to equality. Um, and it had become that, it had become the key to equality because, again, the fabled factory at the edge of town job vanished. 
and so you could no longer go work in a in a uh, union organized uh, manufacturing center and then come home to a house that you owned two cars in the garage raising kids and putting them through college it just doesn't exist anymore um, to a to a, a large extent and so this ideology uh, arose to justify and to discuss uh, school smarts in heroic terms and and as being your, your fundamental sort of source of value. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, I write about it in the book that it is downright creepy to go to a, a middle school when you would, you notice just how the, the cult of you can do anything if you put your mind to it. <clears throat> the only thing that's holding you back is your will. If you try hard every day, you'll succeed which is demonstrably untrue because there are people who try hard in school every day and don't succeed. But also it shifts the burden and says, you are uh, the outcome. Your outcomes are the product of who you are and, and, and your, your grit, your, your drive, rather than um, them largely being out of your own hands. It really is damning. And I, I think you do a terrific job. It's, it's, it's a little bit depressing to me that anybody could sort of take exception to it, but it, I do understand that if I could see how people would, would feel personally attacked being told that they have spent their entire lives perpetuating a deeply unjust system, not just like not a just system, but an unjust system. And something else that, you know, I, I think we ought to talk about really briefly is um, your approach vector to this, because you spend it, you know, there's, I think the last couple chapters, you, you dig into your politics, which, you know, it's it, incidental to the book in the sense that the book is right or not right. Anybody could have written this book and it would be correct um, right. based on what's happening. But you do have, uh, I, I think it is relevant that, you know, you, you come from a, a, a staunchly leftist background and, uh, and your analysis isn't just of the educational system. It is also of the society around it and, uh, and how it interfaces with, with folks' uh, opportunities for employment. Yeah, I mean, um, <clears throat> there are certainly paths without a college degree to wealth, um, like being an NBA player or being a uh, country music star, but <clears throat> those are uh, uh, fields with many, many entrants and very, very few winners, unfortunately. Um, <clears throat> so, once the, the, the system became a system where your only reliable out was to become college educated, then it created this inherent tension. And the tension is based on, on the fact that a college diploma's relative value, its monetary value, so not its real value, right? Not, I'm not talking about its enrichment or, or the, the quality of the education or, or anything like that, but I'm talking about the uh, the economic value is in large measure uh, a a function of its scarcity. A college diploma sets you apart from other people in the labor market. You you sh you show someone your diploma, and that is a way to say I am not like those people. We are unequal. And in fact, we know that the the college wage premium, so the amount of money that people who go to college are making compared to their peers. We know that that's a ratio, the product of a ratio between the number of people who are searching for jobs uh, with a college diploma in hand and the number of jobs that there are available. I mean, obviously, right? We know it empirically, but we also know it like it's, it's just sort of plainly true. But when you think about that, 
that means that the demise of the system is built into it because if you educate more and more people, you have giving more and more people the advantage that they then can't use to set themselves apart. In other words, if everyone gets a college diploma, which some people have talked about as being like the end policy goal, the, the value of that diploma is going to drop to zero. And so it's a it's a, a model based on scarcity that is also supposed to be the system for everyone, and that's an inherent tension. One of the things that you talk about is uh, near the end of the book is you talk about how uh, one of the solutions is figuring out how to get more people jobs, essentially, essentially leftist solutions, is that this, there isn't a way to have a just and equitable society. You're not sort of trying to impose a solution on people, but between UBI and JG, universal basic income, jobs guarantee, is sort of like somewhere in that arena. If the goal of education is to get people jobs, then you, you're, you're creating this sort of unequal market. And so you either need to give everybody jobs or have some way of like getting people that employment, or you need to get the best people jobs and then deal with the people who, who can't make it in the system differently. I mean, look, if you, have, if you have a rigged game, what you want to do eventually is to unrig the game, which would be real serious structural changes to the economy. But what you can do before that that's easier to do is you can lower the stakes of the game. In other words, our system will always produce losers for through no fault of their own. So let's make it so that being a loser doesn't sting so bad. Let's make it so that someone can fail out of school and still be able to ensure that they have the, what they need to live a comfortable uh, and, and secure life. And so things like a jobs guarantee or a universal basic income are tools to in order to do that. It's, it's, you're letting the air out of the balloon a little bit, right? You're relieving some of the tension from the system. Yeah, and, and with the cult of smart, you're also saying, look, if we, if we can get rid of this cult of smart, you talked about you're not you know, a straight A student, you're not, going to, uh, you're not getting a college degree, you're not getting a master's degree, whatever you need to be employed, so be it. You leave school at, you know, in 10th grade. That's 10th grade is, is, is when you make that break, when you make that choice. But the cult of smart has gone away. You're not being able to do this you know, you're, you're not being academically successful isn't a referendum on your dignity. So you're still able to, in addition to having a secure life, having a comfortable life, which you ought to be able to have just as a human, um, you're also able to have a dignified life because there isn't this implicit bias against you because you weren't able to do this thing. There's a story, I and mean, I just, I think of just like that bias, is, and it's a, it's not just a bias in terms of outcomes like in terms of how people are hurt but it's a bias in terms of again ideology and the way that we conceive of human work so it's a story i tell in the book i was at uh, a cookout when i was getting my phd at purdue i don't know seven years ago maybe and there was a bunch of people that i didn't know including a, a chinese family who was a phd student his wife and their two kids two little boys the uh mom was bragging on the older son as mothers will do and talking about how He's top in his class, how he's in a robotics club, um, stuff like that. Her younger son then came running by and made like funny noises with his mouth or whatever. And she, she looked at him and said, he is maybe not so smart. <laughs> now, when I tell that story, people tend to flinch. I flinched when it happened in real life. Other people who were standing around me flinched, right? Because it, it was like, whoa, like, a, a mother doesn't say that their son is unintelligent, right? 
when I thought about it later on that day, I thought to myself, okay, uh, if she had said he, he'll never be a great artist, I wouldn't have cared. I wouldn't have noticed. If she had said he's not a great athlete, I wouldn't have cared. I wouldn't have noticed. If you said he doesn't have an ear for music, I wouldn't have cared. I wouldn't have noticed, right? Um, <clears throat> only smart provokes that reaction, right? Because right. it's smart that's existential. It's smart that says that's your value as a human. It's smart where if, if you say you, you won't be a great athlete, who cares? If you say they're not smart, then you're condemning them to an unhappy life. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, that, that, that seems to me to be unarguable. That's certainly in my experience. I can say, you know, as somebody who spent his childhood on the academic treadmill, we're both from Connecticut. You know, I, I went to Hopkins for prep school, uh, graduated from Yale. And I can't tell you how much doing both of those things successfully engendered a sense of uh, anxiety and self-doubt and anger and manifested itself in all sorts of ways. And also, more than anything else, made me a deeply unhappy person in my relations with other people. And it wasn't until I was in the military for a little while, and I met a lot of people, and I realized how incompetent I was in a, a lot of different ways. And it's so liberating because you realize then that you know we do live in this world where potentially everybody is equal. But the thing that's standing in front of that, I feel, is that the kids who want to go to Yale or Harvard who have that expectation hanging over their head are already living with that sense of superiority inside them, which is a deeply fragile thing and will, again, just as it did for me, engender a lot of disappointment uh, and, and unnecessary sort of hostility to others and to themselves. I mean, I think the, the military, I think, is a very interesting <clears throat> comparison because it is one of the very few places now where we have status hierarchies and, and status competitions, you know, um, comparisons between different people on a variety of metrics, uh, and 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 uh, the will to to exceed others. Um, that's not fundamentally academic in, in nature, where um, where you ha you have that sort of a structure, um, and where you can thrive even if again you you don't have the skills or the tools that uh, are now expected to, of anyone who's going to be somebody who thrives anywhere. Yeah, and on the other side of it, that simply for having participated in it honorably, uh, as defined by the military, in exchange, 36 months of free college education, essentially, uh, for which you are also paid a stipend, which is extraordinary. I, I'd, I'd just like to hear your thoughts about that. And, and Yeah, I mean, the... Um... I'm trying to, to remember the, 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 the official name, the Servicemen's Readjustment Act of uh, 19, whatever, um, <laughs> the, the GI Bill. Um, I mean, that was extraordinary because at this point, uh, college remains exclusive, exclusive in many ways, but it has done, we have at this point picked all the low hanging fruit in terms of people who are already naturally equipped for and inclined to go to college. Whereas when the GI Bill first came around, and when you had all these soldiers returning from World War II, hundreds of thousands of them um, who now had to build lives, you had a population of people who were systematically excluded from college, not just for academic reasons, but because college was truly, at that point, still a finishing school for the elite. Um, 
the Ivy Leagues were something that would, was a truly rarefied territory to, to, be, to be going to those kinds of schools because um, you were generally were someone who was, came from old money. Those schools were in a conspiracy to systematically exclude Jews. They uh, did not generally take working class rural students. But so you had now this generation of, again, hundreds of thousands of soldiers who we're now given the financial wherewithal to be able to attend school. And although the racial dynamics were probably not great, and obviously the gender dynamics were completely skewed, that was part of the greatest democratization of college, uh, of American college and higher education that's ever happened. I mean, people always talk about the 60s as being uh, an, an era of great democratization in the college, but I think that that's overrated. And I think the GI Bill is underrated as being a tool to to fundamentally change the type of person who went to college to not be, you know, no longer being a member of like the gentry, you know what I mean? Like no longer being somebody uh, who uh, who came from a new New England old money family, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It's the people who, people who got in with the GI Bill, we discovered a lot of people who had underlying ability who would not have been discovered otherwise. I'm sure there are still people who, uh, are being under-recruited into college, and again, probably around along racial lines. I think there's probably a lot of talent out there. But in general, look, a third of American adults uh, has a college degree at this point. Enrollments have been going up and up, and the, the percentage of people beginning college at least has been increasing. But the best evidence is that, again, we've picked the low-hanging fruit, and the people we're trying to get into and through the system now are the people who lack that underlying ability. If we are serious about sending more and more kids to college, and as I've already said, I think it's a mistake for the reasons I outlined before, but we have to be prepared for the fact that the ones we're going to get are going to be the ones who would have self-selected out of college in the past and would not be of the academic caliber that we expect. So it's just, it's only going to get harder. Colleges are already obsessed with graduation rate. It's already really hard to keep retention up. People are already panicked about keeping their enrollments up. That's only going to become more difficult as we move more and more marginal students into the system. Just taking a step back from the book for a moment, where do we start with this? If everybody on the Shoreline East train line could just acknowledge that intelligence is one among many virtues and not the ultimate, that would be like a great start. Um, but yeah. then on the other hand, how do, you, how do you get it into the boards of education? How do you get it to to the people who, who make these types of decisions? I mean, the thing is, again, as I said, culture follows economics. I think the biggest way to reduce the stigma, I mean, we can have a campaign, you know, public uh, education campaign, and I'd be all for it, to help people recognize that there are so many other human virtues that are worthwhile. But ultimately, as long as college is the current you know, way to, to get the good life, to, to have security, and to have the chance for self-advancement, um, there's always going to be a stigma in that direction. So what we have to do is, I think one of the biggest things is reinvigorate the labor movement. As I said before, college's advantage is an advantage if it's based on scarcity, right? The more people that have it, the less of an advantage it is. Uh, labor unions are the opposite. The more la people are in, a u are in unions, the more, the more union density that you have, right? In fact, the higher wages go for, for the people in the unions because the bargaining block is bigger and there's fewer people who can scab and, and compete against the union uh, on, on cheaper wages. So 
a reinvigorated labor movement with things like passing the card check uh, bill that uh, labor has been trying to get going for a decade. Um, that would go a long way towards changing the underlying economic conditions. And then then the the stigma will start to go away because going in and being part of a union and uh, and using that uh, as you, your card to the good life, as your, as your path forward to, you know, the two-car garage, whatever, that will start to accrue social benefit and social uh, and, and lack of stigma. That's really wise. Is there anything else that you'd like to address? Any interesting conversations you've seen around the book that you haven't been able to kind of address in the public sphere yet? Well, I guess the, the thing that I would address is there are people who think that because I'm asserting that there is such a thing as a stable academic ability or intelligence, I am writing off kids who are not intelligent. In other words, that the reason to not the reason not to say, hey, some kids are smarter than others is because if you say that, then the ones who are uh, not that smart are getting written off. I find this very frustrating because the whole point of the book is to work for those kids who are not on the right-hand side of the distribution, right? Like I wrote the entire book specifically for the good of kids who are already uh, being stigmatized and excluded and oppressed by the system. I guess it, it sort of makes sense that the cult members in the cult of smart would be the ones who would react most uh, with the greatest hostility to the book. Yeah. But it blindsided me the first conversation that I had with, with one of the cult members because, I mean, I was one. We were, we were all one. Exactly as you said. It's like, well, okay. Well, so then what about those people who fail out of school? Like, what do you, what do, you do about them? You know, you leave them by the wayside? And it's like, well, that's not the point. The point is that's how the system is now actually um, i mean i'm i'm kind of a weird case because i on the, on the one hand i have a phd and i've always been an academic like you know I'm, I'm an academic by nature on the other hand in high school i never went a semester without failing a math or a science class usually both and i started out at community college um so i've seen several different uh, sides of it um, but I am one of these, you know, quote unquote, smart kids. I was when I was growing up in high school, in in in, uh, in elementary school, etc. I didn't do my work, but I was I was a designated smart kid or whatever. And you get indoctrinated into uh, a worldview that you work hard. People who are smart still have to work hard, and the system seems to be rewarding you for your qualities. And so it's it's scary and challenging to be told that the system is immoral that the system is you know, functionally broken. You're not making the claim that intelligence isn't a good thing. You're simply making the claim that, you're, you're, you're making the observation with the book that the system behaves as though intelligence was the only good thing. With the potential exception of athletics, which is so dodgy and so dicey, and anybody who knows anything about like the pipeline to professional athletics Firstly, very much a zero-sum game where, like, if you're not one, truly one of the best, you have no hope. And being yeah. truly one of the best, being Allstate in Connecticut, going to uh, UConn on a full-ride scholarship, you still need to be one of the best people on the UConn basketball team or football team to get into the NBA, to get into the NFL, and have a shot at having, like, a middle-class income for five years or ten years if you're lucky. That's no kind of – I mean, that's – you know, versus being a, a, a pretty smart kid at Guilford High School, say, and probably, I don't know, going to Colgate 
or going to uh, Williams or Amherst, you're, if, if you make your way down to New York City, you're going to have a six-figure job in a bank or an investment bank, or, or you're going to be able to go into academia in some way, shape, or form uh, and have a fine career. Uh, totally different things, like almost incomparable. I mean, athletics uh, is where people accept what I'm asking them to accept. In other words, everyone acknowledges that there's such a thing as natural talent or natural ability in athletics. Nobody thinks that um, everybody has, is on a completely equal playing field when they're born in, a, in athletics. And nobody would tell, I mean, you know, anyone will tell a kid, you know, sometimes you're gonna fail and it's okay. It's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not your fault if you fail. And you need to be prepared for that because sometimes competition is fierce and sometimes things are really hard to do. And you know, people have that perspective when it comes to athletics, but when it comes to school, we have to pretend and say, if you try your hardest, no matter who you are, you are going to flourish like those other kids flourish. And that's just not true. Yeah, on, on top of which, like, when you examine the details of it, you realize further how ridiculous it is. Of course, you know, a, co a college recruiter might look at, you know, a basketball standouts stat line and say, well, you know, what happened your sophomore year? You only averaged 11 points per game. And, and that has like a, a direct output in college hoops, you know, and that demands a, an explanation. Having B's and A's your sophomore year trying to get into uh, Cornell because you want to study there has no uh, relationship whatsoever to like the type of job that you're going to get, that like that you're actually qualified for. You leave college, you do a couple internships, and then you learn what you're actually supposed to do at work. You know, right. editing, writing, you know, like writing a journalistic article versus writing the typical five paragraph essay in right. high school or college. Like the, the two things have very little in common. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, one of the things that college gives that I'd like to give to everyone is the it's a period for people where they have the security to be able to explore what they want to do and figure out what they're good at. Uh, that doesn't exist for people uh, who are forced into the you know minimum wage jobs that they have to start in the beginning of their lives. If you don't go to college and you as an 18 year old you enter the workforce, um, you don't get that period of feeling out where you get to, to find out, you know, who you really are and what you're really good at. Uh, and that's a good example of the kind of uh, thing where if we had a more redistributive social safety net, if we had more of a, of a social democratic state, uh, then people would be able to take time and say, you know what, I'm not good at this. I am good at this. I'm going to do this for a living. Um, and, and that shouldn't just be the province of people who are, you know, sophomores at the University of Michigan or whatever. Are there any countries that, that do this like anywhere approximating where you would like it to be done or how you would well, like it to be done? I mean, in terms of stigma and, and the parents' attitude, look at Finland, okay? So, and, and many or most um, uh, metrics, Finland has the best educational outcomes in the world, okay? Uh, they, they, their testing, et cetera, their PISA scores are remarkable. Uh, and yet, it is perfectly common for uh, uh, Finnish students to not be able to read when they start school at five, okay? So in other words, it's a place where both with incredible educational outcomes, but also where it's, they're not even, parents aren't even trying to teach their kid to read at five years old, right? And they, and they just have an attitude of, they'll get it, you know, they'll pick it up, they'll get it in school, whatever. If one of my professional managerial class kids, friends' kids, excuse me, 
Um, if, you know, people, my friends and my, my liberal friends who are in the professional managerial class, if their kids aren't meeting at three years old, they would be bedlam. They'd be hiring experts. They'd be talking <laughs> to the pediatrician, right? Um, the Finns, whatever, you know, it's like, they'll get it, they'll pick it up. And so it's a, it's, it's a demonstration that um, being completely crazy about school does not mean that you're going to have better outcomes, right? You can chill, you can relax about school and you can, and you can take a breath about whether little, little Johnny is, you know, in his robot, robot, robot club or whatever. Uh, you can chill about that stuff and still see educational excellence. And I'd love it if that attitude pervaded in the United States. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat with me uh, today. Really appreciate it. And uh, for any listener who hasn't already uh, bought the book and read it, I strongly encourage you to. It is, at worst case scenario, it will make you very angry and make you question all of your assumptions. But it's useful to do that anyway, even if you don't end up agreeing with the premise of the book, as I have. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Thank you.